I say there are things better left unsolved. Who knows what waits for us in nature's no man's land? Impossible, unbelievable, fantastic. But I tell you, it could happen. It could happen. It could happen. It could happen. This is Unstable Molecules, Explorations in the Origins of the Marvel Universe, the podcast dedicated to delving into the early years of the Marvel comics, its characters and creators. I'm Gary Hollingsby, and this time we're off to find monsters. Really big monsters. We'll look at what type of comics Atlas Marvel were creating at the end of the 50s, and why giant beasts and alien invaders of the monster age became a crucial component of the formation of the Marvel Universe. It's these types of fantasy and science fiction comics that brought together the Marvel architects, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, as well as creators like Dick Ayres, Don Heck, Joe Sinnott, Larry Lieber, Bob Powell, Al Williamson and John Buscema. A tidal wave of terror engulfs the screen as a raging monster from the dawn of creation attacks the world of man. Television and movies influenced comics throughout the 1950s. Science fiction was popular in the early 50s, knights and chivalry in the mid-50s, westerns throughout the decade. But it's giant monsters at the end of the 1950s that defined much of Atlas Comics' most memorable work. And this monster craze coincided with the artists Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko returning to work at Martin Goodman's company. Then the red alert. The 1950s was a great decade to be a moviegoer if you loved weird, pulpy science fiction and monster movies. Undoubtedly, many of the movies expressed the fears that were simmering just below the surface at that time. The dangers and effects of atomic power, the Cold War, the growth of a mass society where the individual becomes lost. West Coast reels under Holocaust as the men and weapons of the atomic age battle to the death against the ageless monster of the deep. Monster movies of the 1950s seem to express a threat from nature itself. Somehow, humanity was disturbing the order of things, usually as a result of atomic testing, and the consequence was usually a giant monster. It was a popular genre, and some of the highlights were, in 1953, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which had atomic testing in the Arctic release a giant dinosaur that then went on to attack New York. In 1954, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, about an amphibious man living in an isolated part of the Amazon. Them, giant ants irradiated by New Mexico atomic testing. In 1955, It Came from Beneath the Sea, giant radioactive octopus sent on the rampage by hydrogen bomb testing in the Pacific Ocean. There was also Tarantula, obviously about a giant spider. In 1956, Godzilla, King of the Monsters which was the American recut of the 1954 Japanese classic. In 1957, 20 million miles to Earth, where an alien monster wreaks havoc in Italy. There was also From Hell It Came, about a giant zombie tree stump. The Giant Claw, about a bird from outer space. And The Amazing Colossal Man, about a colossal man. 
1958's Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. And in 1959, the giant bear moth about a radioactive dinosaur that attacked the UK. The other strand of movies that fed into Atlas Comics were the terrifying alien invasion stories, which were often nothing more than thinly veiled expressions of Cold War terror. And the most notable of these were 1951's The Thing from Another World, which was the archetypal um, people under attack by an alien in an Arctic base. It was 1953's War of the Worlds, about Martian invaders. Also in 1953, Invaders from Mars, which was also about Martian invaders. And also in 1953, It Came from Outer Space, which this time was about one-eyed jellyfish aliens that crash-landed in Arizona. 1955 saw This Island Earth, about warring aliens attempting an invasion. 1956 saw Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which was really invasion by the pod people. Forbidden Planet, was about an invisible monster um, attacking characters on an alien planet. Earth versus the Flying Saucers, which was Earth being attacked by flying saucers. 1957 saw The Incredible Shrinking Man. And in 1958, there was The Blob, about a giant alien amoeba. The Fly, about a scientist who mutates into a giant fly. 1959 saw It, the terror from beyond space, about a Martian who hunts down the crew of a spacecraft. And supposedly this was the inspiration for the later Ridley Scott Alien movie. Jack Kirby's return to Atlas either coincided with the company chasing the giant monster craze in the way that Martin Goodman's company always chased anything that could sell well or was a genre that Kirby enjoyed and encouraged. By the late 50s, Kirby was already a veteran of the comics industry and clearly had an understanding of potential markets and trends that comics should follow. It's difficult to know if it was Kirby who suggested jumping into the monster craze or whether it was just something that the market-driven Goodman thought would turn a dollar. Whatever the origin, Kirby's role in generating an almost endless number of weird, memorable monsters had a dramatic effect on the popularity of the company's comics, which sold in the millions. Atlas was already publishing fantasy books like Journey into Mystery and World of Fantasy, and added three more titles, Strange Worlds, Tales to Astonish and Tales of Suspense, in 1958-59. The stories in these comics are mostly told in the first person by characters who would either unleash monsters through scientific misadventure or through exploration. It's thought that Larry Lieber, Stan's brother, scripted most of the, of the early stories based on Stan's outlines. The early monster comics had a common format of four short stories. But these began to change to expand to 13-page two-chapter lead stories. And it's during this time that Lee introduced what was called the Marvel Method, which avoided the need for detailed scripts and relied on the artist playing a greater role in the story conception process. This was a time-saving tool for a company that consisted of mainly a skeleton staff. And we'll look at the Marvel Method in more detail in another episode. 
Steve Ditko also returned to Marvel at this time, and while his influence on what became early Marvel seems to have been in the anxiety and terror of alien invasion stories, it's Kirby's involvement with the monster books that have the greater impact on those early Marvel heroes and villains. The most memorable aspects of these monsters are their names. From the pages of Journey into Mystery, we have creatures like Monstro, Zog, Orogo, Ro, the thing from the bottomless pit, Shag, Bombu, Gondola, Zemnu, Rorg, Gruto, Sprag, Carilla, Glob. From Strange Tales, we have monsters like Grotu, Gorgola, Tabu, Dragoom, Gargantus, Grog, Zutak, Fin Fang Foom, and Org. And from Tales of Suspense, we have Monstro, a different Monstro, Spore, Gorkill, Goom, Gugam, Kra, Clag, Monstrolo. And finally, from Tales to Astonish, we have Mummix, Droom, Titano, Monstrum, Gorgilla, Groot, Krang, Blip, Rombu, Trull, and Moomba. December 1958 saw the launch of Strange Worlds, which had Kirby drawing covers. Um, Ditko drew numbered issue two and the occasional story. Strange Worlds was subtitled Tales of the Strangest Worlds of All, and the title lasted five issues. The first issue of Strange Worlds has a, a great story called I Discovered the Secret of the Flying Saucers, which was drawn by Kirby. That's some tremendous art and has a, a light twist ending. And there's also a follow-up story called I Captured the Abominable Snowman, where Ditko shows some, some early work that later finds echo in Doctor Strange. It's issue three where Kirby's first giant monster appears in a stunning cover at the head of a four-page science fiction story set in the future. I was face to face with a creature from Planet X where a young female reporter finds herself locked in a zoo overnight with a gigantic alien which escapes or tries to help the reporter, it's not exactly clear which, and quick, quickly collapses due to a lack of its own atmosphere. It can't breathe Earth's air. It's a fairly simplistic story. The art by Kirby and inks by Christopher Rule have a, an Alex Raymond quality, but it does give an indication about how monsters are going to be used in the later stories and how these gigantic beasts can be readily mixed with futuristic science fiction. Igor, look! What is that? It looks like... How? How? How could it be? An, an enormous tentacle! What if he should try to come up on the shore? Nothing could stop him! That was the start from 
Monstroso, The Menace of the Murky Depths from Tales of Suspense, issue 8, March 1960. There is something like 150 monster stories that were published by Atlas between 1959 and 1963. Many are unmemorable other than the name of the monster and some do have interesting artwork. Now, I think there are 16 monster stories that are really worthwhile reading, and I've listed all of them on the Unstable Molecules website. They've all been reprinted and are most easily available in the Marvel Masterworks editions or Amazing Fantasy Omnibus, and probably are available from Marvel digitally as well. There are six stories I'm going to look at now that I think exemplify the best of Atlas's big monster age. August 1959's Strange Tales issue 70 has a cover by Jack Kirby and Dick Ayres with the caption You'll gasp at the fantastic things that happen when the Sphinx wakes and shows a statue of the Sphinx raising a gigantic paw while men and women run about below in panic. The story is the final one in the issue and it's drawn by Steve Ditko. And it's a five-page tale involving aliens and the statue of the Sphinx. At the start, an Egyptian guide called Ahmed teaches a Western traveller about the statue of the Sphinx. It's a symbol of the mystical way of life, and the guide insists that the spirit of Ptah sleeps within the statue. The first page and a half are given over to recounting the history of the Sphinx. The Westerner doubts the story, and there's a clash of Eastern and Western ideologies between belief and materialism presented. The traveller insists that the Sphinx is nothing more than the pompous display of a vain pharaoh. Ahmed hopes that the Westerner will have his view of reality changed. And at that very moment, a fiery light materialises into a giant alien spacecraft. Two monstrous orange humanoid aliens named Zoke and Okzik are amazed how small the two humans are and sarcastically joke about how difficult their invasion will be because humans are so tiny and difficult to capture. One of the aliens fires a paralysing gas at the humans. The frozen humans watch as the statue of the Sphinx comes to life and attacks the aliens. The aliens flee in their rocket, abandoning plans of invading Earth. The Sphinx bites the rocket as it flies away. The humans wake up later and the Westerner claims that the incident was just a trick of the imagination. However, a small fragment of the alien ship drops from the mouth of the the statue of the Sphinx. The Westerner finally accepts the reality of what has happened. Ahmed reveals that he's the descendant of the pharaohs, and this is why the Sphinx had defended the men. And the final panel has the two men riding away, the Westerner exclaiming that he now perceives some deeper power in the universe. It's a classic Steve Ditko story with some impressive renderings of Egyptian settings. There's a mix of mysticism and science fiction that works really well. The comic also has this bombastic, awkward phrasing that becomes famous in later Marvel comics. March 1960's Tales of Suspense, issue 8, has a cover by Kirby and Ayres, with the caption, He lives, he moves, he's monstroso, the menace from the murky depths. It's a really thrilling cover, one of the best, where there's a gigantic octopus attacking a dock, taking out a jet fighter and a fishing boat. The story inside 
monstroso the menace from the murky depths has pencils by kirby and inks by air and it's a six-page story that starts at a seaport in a soviet bloc country it's attacked by a giant octopus the soviet officials decide to enlist the support of american scientists because they can't deal with it themselves professor faraday the leading expert on ocean life travels to the country and immediately takes a dive to take a look at Monstroso and nearly gets caught. He tells the Soviets that they can do nothing about the giant octopus and promises that it won't be a problem after 24 hours. They don't believe him and a mob gathers to lynch the scientists. It's not the answer they wanted. But Monstroso attacks just at that moment and Faraday managed to escape aboard a freighter. At the end of the story, Faraday reveals that he had discovered that the octopus had been contaminated by atomic weapons testing. He realised that Monstroso would revert to original size after a period of time. Faraday guessed that the Soviets would have rather dropped an atomic bomb on the seaport rather than the West learn of its secret weapons testing from Faraday. And the story ends as a generalised warning about the effects of damaging nature. This comic's got some excellent art by Kirby and Ayres. It's one of the best looking of the monster stories. The story is predictable and un- uneven and spends too long with Faraday exclaiming anti-communist sentiments. But the depiction of the octopus and the havoc it wreaks is really great and well worth reading. June 1960s Strange Tales issue 75 as a cover by Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko inking. The cover is a ghoulish mud monster rising out of the swamp, which is chasing three men towards the reader. The headline is, I am taboo. And one of the men, knee deep in swamp water, screams, The swamp! It's alive! It's rising up! No, no, no! It's taboo! Inside the story, Taboo, the thing from the murky swamp, has pencils by Kirby and inks by by Ayres. The story opens with a classic splash page, which I think is one of Kirby's best, showing a threatening mud monster with a tiny man standing before it in terror. It's narrated by Lewis Conrad, a best-selling true adventure writer. He travels to the Amazon to research his latest book. He explores the country, but his native guides refuse him to take him into a forbidden swamp, the place where the swamp demon Taboo lives. Realising he has the subject for his next book, He travels into the swamp on his own. Soon he sees an alligator caught by mud. It then becomes a monster that chases him and captures Conrad. The mud monster picks him up and telepathically communicates with him. Taboo explains he's an alien and while on a peace mission has crashed into the swamp. Earth's atmosphere prevents Taboo from leaving the swamp and he's waited until someone could help him. Conrad goes back to civilization to collect Earth's scientific knowledge supposedly to help build a rocket for Taboo. Conrad returns to the swamp with a computerised machine containing the scientific knowledge. And as soon as Taboo receives the machine, he reveals his true intentions. He will take the knowledge back to his home world, where Earth's strengths and weaknesses can be evaluated to ensure a successful invasion. Taboo flies off, not needing a spacecraft. And when he leaves the atmosphere, he explodes. The scientists had fitted an H-bomb as a precaution. The last caption leaves the story open for a sequel. And so ended the threat of taboo. Or so we thought. Yes, so we thought. This is one of the better short monster stories. Because humans are presented, for a change, as being clever 
are not so trusting or mistrustful and they're able to easily deceive the aliens and deal with them. Tabu returns two issues later in a story that ends with him being captured by his own species and taken back to his home planet. March 1961's Tales of Suspense issue 15 has a cover by Kirby and Ayres with a caption, Behold, Goom, the thing from Planet X, and shows a very weird-looking grey alien with a giant head but very few teeth, uprooting a tree while people flee in terror. One man clinging to Goom shouts, Get back, run for your lives, nothing can stop Goom. Inside the story, Goom, the thing from Planet X, is drawn by Kirby and inked by Ayres. It has a great opening splash page with Goom chasing a couple of humans. An astronomer and psychologist, and it's important to realise from the start that he is astronomer and psychologist, this is going to come into play later in the story, who's called Mark, theorises that there are unknown planets in the solar system which haven't been detected. His fellow scientists refuse to accept this, so he takes his wife high up in the mountains to an observatory, and he uses the observatory to send out radar beams to look for planets. On the third day of his investigation, he discovers a gigantic planet just beyond Jupiter. He then tries to communicate with the alien life there, and his broadcasts are detected by Goom, who pilots a spacecraft to Earth and arrives at the observatory, revealing himself to be a giant bat-like creature. Goom quickly decides that Earth is helpless before him, and he shows off his amazing leaping powers. The astronomer and his wife manage to escape while he's doing this, and in part two, Goom catches up with the, the couple and seizes them. It's a really great splash page there. And he instructs the astronomer to go and tell the leaders of Earth that Goom is peaceful and he needs to meet them. Goom will hold the astronomer's wife as a hostage, and he uses a neutron ray to disintegrate a nearby mountain. His threat is that he's going to use the weapon on her unless the astronomer does as he's instructed. All goes to Goom's plan, and he meets with world leaders to inform them of his plans to conquer Earth. He grabs a man and reverses his age until he's a baby, and this absolutely terrifies the world leaders. He then lifts a nearby city into the air and sends it to the edge of space, and finally he instructs the leaders to physically attack him, and they find he's protected by a force field. Faced with annihilation, the world leaders agree with Goom's demands. But meanwhile, the astronomer has contacted more aliens. But he's branded as a traitor. As he's taken out to be shot, the alien spacecraft arrives. They intervene and demand that the astronomer is not killed. In fact, they're a peaceful race opposed to violence. They tell the humans that Goom is an outcast and a renegade, and they take him with them. They hope that in future humans and, and their race will be able to meet on friendly terms. And the story ends with the astronomer revealing that his training as a psychologist made him realise that Goom's civilization couldn't be evil. The ending is hopeful in insisting that aliens must be contacted and that humanity's destiny is in the stars. It's a longer story in two parts and it's really enjoyable. Goom is a silly one-dimensional creation but Kirby's art is great throughout. The longer story allows it to be better paced without the rushed endings of the shorter monster tales we've seen so far. 
April 1961's Strange Tales 83 has, again, a cover by Jack Kirby and Dick Ayres, with the caption, Let mankind beware, Grog is here. And it's got a great cover, a giant orange dragon wearing underpants, which becomes a feature of a lot of dragons drawn by Kirby, which is fighting off jet planes and a crowd of armed people on the edge of a cliff. Inside the story, which is called From Out of the Black Pit Came Grog, is drawn by Kirby and Ayres. And it opens again with another fantastic splash page. Grog inside is far more menacing, and this time he's breathing fire. The opening caption claims that the tale is not fiction. Just as a man is about to be executed by a Soviet firing squad, it's discovered that he's called Miklos Kozlov, a highly regarded scientist. The Soviets instruct Kozlov that he will supervise secret underground nuclear tests, and they travel to a remote Asian country, which is possibly Tibet, where the locals urge the Soviets not to disturb Grog with their testing. The Soviets ignore the pleas and conduct their experiments, and a giant dragon-like creature emerges from the snow. Grog attacks a village, but a villager speaks with the monster and urges it to attack the Soviets instead. And at the end of the first part, the Soviets escape in a plane. In part two, which is called The Awesome Vengeance of Grog, we see a flying Grog now chasing the Soviet plane and breathing fire. The plane crashes and Grog attacks the soldiers. The scientists and a handful of surviving soldiers take shelter in a cave. Grog waits outside and the Soviets decide to hand over the scientists to the monster as a sacrifice. As Grog is about to kill the scientist, he uses some chemicals to create a smokescreen to escape. Grog loses the scientist's trail, and the scientist is rescued by an American plane, which is coincidentally in the area. He's granted asylum in the, in the United States. At the end, the scientist reveals that he knew of the existence of dragon creatures all along. He explained that he actually wanted Grog to wake up and attack the Soviets, and he imagines them being killed one by one, as they leave the cave. And the final panel shows the scientist talking about dedicating his life to democracy and world peace. What's really great about this comic is that the artwork is, is, is very, very strong. Kirby shows a natural flair for drawing these amazing looking dragons. But after a great start and some engaging sequences of rog, grog rising from the snow, the story simply becomes a sort of anti-communist piece that's sort of over, overwhelmed by its own rhetoric. And at the end, we don't even really know what happened to Grog and what happened to the Soviets trapped in the, in the cave. June 1961's Amazing Adventures issue one has a cover by Kirby and Ayres. And has the caption, join us in the search for Tor. It's a really great cover four men searching for Tor and finding a giant footprint while a gigantic monster with shaggy mane and shaggy arms sneaks up on them from behind and one of the men says look at this print it's impossible nothing can be this huge another man saying Tor can and the final one saying quiet Tor might be anywhere the comic has a great opening splash page with a couple of figures in the foreground retreating from an orange tour. Colour again like lots of these monsters changes from the cover to inside. 
It's an alien invasion story by a large orange Ben Grimm-like creature with a lion's mane beard and yellow shorts. It's a warlike, brutal creature that seems incongruous with the slender, silvery space rocket it travels in. The story has a first-person narration. Paul Ramsey is on trial for the wanton slaying of his friend John Carter. If only he could tell them the truth about Tor. The narrative moves back to the lonely mountaintop observatory where the astronomers Ramsey and Carter accidentally send radio waves that cause a spaceship to land nearby and the giant creature, Tor, telepathically tells them that the Earth will make a suitable satellite for his homeworld. Ramsey tries to shoot Tor with a rifle and this makes Tor realise that humans could be dangerous and he picks the two astronomers up and carries them to a nearby cave. In part two, Tor changes bodies with Carter so he could go out and examine humanity. Before he goes, he straps what looks like a watch to Ramsey's wrist and tells him that if he reveals the truth, it will send a signal and 10,000 more Tors will arrive. There's a fantastic couple of pages where Tor reveals how he will conquer the Earth through hypno-illusion gas and what he's going to do with the enslaved Earthlings. The hypno-gas panels are really great and Kirby obviously had a great lot of fun drawing these nightmarish, surreal hallucinations. Ramsey snatches a nearby policeman's gun and shoots Tor, realising that the only way to defeat the alien is his friend's is, is killing him in his friend's form. And by killing his friend, he stops Tor. But because he's wearing the wrist device, he's unable to tell the truth, a little like the way that Baron Mordo prevents Doctor Strange from telling the Ancient One. At the very moment that Ramsey is about to be found guilty, Carter is returned to his body and is found alive. Carter is able to tell the court the truth and reveal that the spell that swapped his body with Tor's was broken. Probably the word spell is used to gloss over the fact that Carter's body would have died if it had been shot. Luckily, the death of Tor also caused the wrist device to crumble, and the astronomers decide that there's only a billion to one chance that Tor's race will find Earth. Tor is definitely one of the best of the monster stories. It's got strong art by Kirby and Ayers, plus a really engaging story. The hypno-illusion sequence particularly conjures up a weirdness of 50s EC horror comics, and of all of the comics I'd say that this is definitely one to pick up and read. Finally, the most famous of the giant monsters produced by Atlas Marvel Comics. is in October 1961's Strange Tales issue 89. The cover by Kirby and Ayers is masterful. A green dragon-like monster lifts up a building while reaching for a fleeing man. The monster says, No place on earth will give you safety, mortal, when Fin Fang Foom strikes. And we get a caption, Fin Fang Foom, the most fearful menace of them all. Inside, the story, Fin Fang Foom, which is penciled by Kirby and inked by Ayers, begins with a splash page that shows a much more dragon-like orange Fin Fang Foom battling Chinese Red Army soldiers. It's a really dynamic panel, really great. The story starts in communist China, where police are chasing traitors through the streets and find the words Fin Fang Foom graffitied on the wall. It's like a teaser, really great opening. It's then narrated by Chan Lao Chao, who has a career as an academic on the island of Formosa, 
which I guess is modern Taiwan. And this is much the disappointment of his father, who wants him to be a soldier rather than someone who studies history and literature. The Chinese Red Army are preparing an invasion of Formosa. Lu Chao travels the Chinese mainland in search of Fin Fang Foom, while his father thinks he's become a traitor and joined the Red Army. Lu Chao finds a crypt and gets past the guards inside and finds a sleeping dragon, Fin Fang Foom. Lu Chao uses herbs to wait Fin Fang Foom, and then he threatens the monster by telling it that he'll pull it back to sleep because it's ugly. This insult angers the dragon, who declares Lu Chao an enemy and chases him out of the crypt. People nearby attack, and this further angers Fin Fang Foom. Part two of the story opens with the dragon smashing up the Great Wall of China, and Fin Fang Foom chases Lu Chao on horseback at this point, almost catching him in a river, until the hero leads the dragon to where the Red Army are mobilising, ready for their invasion of Formosa. Lu Chao leads the dragon through the army, and Fin Fang Foom smashes buildings, vehicles, a battleship, and even the whole entire docks. And this damage prevents the invasion. It's all part of Lu Chao's plan. The hero then lures the dragon back to the crypt, where he uses herbs to render the dragon back to into its eternal sleep. When he returns home, his father had learned of Lu Chao's actions and receives him warmly as a hero. When I was a kid, I loved going to the movies, and there was one movie I had seen, I remember nothing about it except the name. Those three words just stuck in my memory, Chu Chin Chow. So when I was looking for the name of a monster, I remember Chu Chin Chow, and that particular meter, that beat, somehow led to Fin Fang Foom. Chu Chin Chow, Fin Fang Foom, and that's how Fin Fang Foom was born. That's Stan Lee on the creation of Fin Fang Foom. Now, Fin Fang Foom is one of the best of the giant monster stories. As Stan Lee says, it has a catchy name, but it also has some of Kirby's best work at this time. Plus, unusually, as a decent plot which doesn't rely on a silly gimmick like Enchanted Paint or a Magic Typewriter. Also, there's no backstory about Fin Fang Foom at this point, although later he does join the Marvel Universe as an alien. And that lack of a backstory at this point keeps this comic story very straightforward. The design of Fin Fang Foom is great, and Kirby obviously draws inspiration from the Chinese depictions of dragons, and it has these amazing fish-like beard and ears that give it a great deal of personality. Plus, it wears shorts. There are some amazing visual storytelling sequences that work incredibly well in cinematic terms. When Fin Fang Foom wakes up and the reader sees him for the first time, he does so through a sequence of panels that raises the anxiety. The dragon opens one of its eyes and we see a shadow on a wall before actually seeing the monster itself. There's also the chase over four pages that wouldn't have been out of place in an Alfred Hitchcock movie at the time. It's incredibly thrilling, and especially the part where Fin Fang Foom almost captures Lu Chao in the river. Once Lean Goodman knew they were onto a potential superhero goldmine, these monster and science fiction comics became vehicles for the new heroes the company were generating. Still constrained by the straitjacket of a distribution agreement with National Comics, 
which would last until 1968, Marvel was only allowed to publish eight titles a month. And it's worth remembering that other genres like teen girl comics and westerns still generated strong sales for the company well into the 1970s. Five of the monster science fiction titles became superhero comics by the early part of 1963, which also gives an indication about how quickly the Marvel style of superhero comics had taken off. Tales to Astonish became an Ant-Man title in August 1962 with issue 34. Strange Tales, which was originally launched as a horror comic, then rebooted into a science fiction monster comic with issue 68, became an absolutely awful Human Torch solo ongoing in September 1962 with issue 100. Journey into Mystery, which was another horror comic from the 1950s that transformed into a science fiction giant monster comic with issue 51 in March 1959, became an ongoing Thor title in July 1962 with issue 82. Amazing Fantasy, which was essentially a Steve Ditko one-man comic, went through name changes from Amazing Adventures and Amazing Adult Fantasy to Amazing Fantasy. And its final issue, number 15, in August 1962, was the first Spider-Man comic. In March 1963, Tales of Suspense became an ongoing Iron Man comic with issue 38. And effectively, by then, the Atlas Age of Giant Monsters was over. As we'll see when we get to the launch of The Fantastic Four, Giant monsters, aliens and science fiction tropes drawn from 50s movies play a tremendous role in establishing the foundations of the Marvel Comics universe. From their exposure to cosmic rays while travelling into space and their encounter with the Mole Man and his subterranean creatures, it's very easy to see how Lee and Kirby's experience of creating giant monsters fed readily into the FF's origin. But that's for another episode. Thanks for listening to Unstable Molecules. Unstable Molecules is written, edited and narrated by Gary Hollingsby. That's me. If you like the podcast, please tell others about it. You can follow us on Twitter at MarvelUMPodcast. You can rate and review us in iTunes or subscribe to us in any podcatcher of your choice. And you can check out the supporting material at our website, www.MarvelUnstableMolecules.com. Next time, we'll actually look at the Marvel team's first attempts in 1961 to create an ongoing superhero of sorts, the amazing Dr. Droom. <laughs> <laughs>